everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning to open the Word of God with you and consider the salvation that we share through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to turn to the book of Romans. Yes, we're taking a little break from the book of Acts this morning, and I want to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're not going to be looking very far this morning, but the passage we're going to be looking at contains a great amount of depth. There's a great amount of truth that we can draw from this passage and uh, a lot of promises that we can hold to, that we can cling to. When we consider the Bible, when we look at the Bible as a whole, we can think of it as a great symphony, the great symphony of a rescue story, the great symphony of how God saved a people to himself. All of the Bible is about God. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done and what he is going to do. Like Grant reminded us last week, what we read in Scripture is a rescue story, and we love good rescue stories. And it's a rescue story that we here today are a part of. Now, We, in this story, are not the center of the story. That's something that we also have to consider. We, in this story, are the ones who need to be rescued. We are not the rescuer. We are not the ones who uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are not the ones who overcome great adversity and challenges. No, we are the one who is rescued. We are the one who... Are, we are the ones who are delivered in this great rescue story of God. And all of Scripture is about the story of redemption, the story of God redeeming a people to himself, saving them from their sins and destruction and adopting them as sons and daughters of God. The rescue story that God is telling through creation is not about the one who is being rescued, It is a story about the rescuer, and salvation is the story of how God glorifies himself by showing grace and mercy to an undeserving people. And because salvation is a work of God, it is not something that we bring about. It is not something that we can somehow purchase or earn or work for. Rather, it is the free gift that God has purchased through the giving of his Son, and freely giving, uh, uh, his son being freely given to the people of God through faith. Because salvation is the work of God, it is also something that is a certainty for those who believe. It is something that cannot be lost. Salvation is of the Lord. That was the great cry from, of Jonah while he was in the whale. Salvation is of the Lord. Psalm 3 verse 8 says this, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Salvation is not something that we purchase. Salvation is not something that is earned. Salvation is something that is freely received through faith in Christ. And we praise God for his great and abundant mercy. And because of this, We can have a great certainty and comfort if we have trusted in Christ, knowing that our salvation is secure. And one of the great verses, uh, one of the great passages that solidifies this reality for us in Scripture is found 
in Romans chapter 8. In fact, we could read through the whole chapter and see that it all is speaking of that subject, uh, but perhaps the crescendo of this chapter, if we think of it as a, symphon- uh, a symphony, is found here in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and this is going to be the subject of uh, the message this morning. Romans, 28, or Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage uh, has been called by many the golden chain of redemption. It is the great chain that secures our eternal salvation to God. It speaks of the great work that God has done in redeeming us to himself. This is what sets biblical Christianity apart from the religions of the world. It is the work of God, the work that God has done in securing our salvation that sets us apart from all the deviations that Christianity has seen. The reason, uh, it is a complete contrast to the religions of the world. As Christians, we can know that our salvation is secure because it is something that God does. And this is a great contrast to what we might see. If you ask many in the world today, salvation is uncertain. If you go up and ask someone, well, do you think you're going to go to heaven? They may say, well, I sure hope so. Or they may say, well, I think I've lived a good enough life that I'll make it. Or they'll say, well, yes, I'm, I'm going because I'm, I'm part of this particular group. I'm part of this particular organization. And through my participation in this organization, I will surely find salvation. The reason that salvation is so uncertain in the religions of the world and unbiblical forms of Christianity is because salvation is something that is completely dependent on the person seeking to be saved rather than the Savior. In these systems, you can gain and lose your salvation. You can never have any assurance of it because they are about what you must do rather than what Christ has done. They are about God has gone this far, now the responsibility is on you to go the rest of the way. The Bible, however, tells a different story. The story that Scripture tells is not the story about how we make ourselves right with God, but rather how God has made us right with himself and saves us for his own eternal glory. God is the one who saves And this passage that we're looking at this morning shows us these five things that God does to secure our salvation forever. Those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior are forever secured in the salvation that has been given to them through these five acts of God. And these five acts, these five things that we're going to be looking at, have been called the golden chain of redemption. And we read them, we see that they are for new predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So I'm going to read the passage one more time just so it's in our mind. We'll pray, and that'll be the end of the introduction. We'll get into the message. And we know that all things work together for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, 
so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Our Father, we are thankful for the truth that we find here in Scripture. We are thankful that our salvation is a work that is accomplished through what your Son has done on the cross by taking our sin taking the punishment that is deserved and rising again from the dead so that we can have the assurance of eternal life through him. We thank you for this great passage that speaks of the certainty of our salvation, something that you have done, something that can never be taken away from us because it is a gift that you have given. We pray that we would be blessed by the reading and discussion of your word this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So, This is called the golden chain of redemption by some people. Uh, And we can think of it as a chain that secures our salvation forever. And these five words, we can think of them as five golden links that hold us to Christ. These are five things that God does that secures our salvation. And we're going to look at two of them this morning. Yes, this is going to be a two-part message, but we're going to look at two of them Uh, that we find here in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And the first one we're going to look at is foreknew. What does it mean uh, that God foreknew? Who are these whom God has foreknown? Well, we have an understanding of what foreknowledge is, don't we? Uh, For example, Um, I have knowledge of things that my wife likes and dislikes. If we go to a restaurant, I could probably order something that my wife would like because I have knowledge of her and I have foreknowledge based on what I know of her. But something that we need to be careful of is to not mix our own understanding of what our foreknowledge is with God and his foreknowledge. We can have some degree of foreknowledge based on our own experiences and based on the world around us. We know that the sun is going to rise the next day. Uh, We know what gifts that our significant other might uh, enjoy receiving. And while God certainly does know these things, when we read of God knowing or foreknowing something, we need to understand that when we are speaking of God, we are speaking of an eternal being. We are speaking of someone who is outside of time, outside of space, knows the end from the beginning, so his knowledge goes far beyond us. It goes far beyond our own. For God to foreknow something is not the same thing that we do when we foreknow something. We know it based off of experience, how we live, our relationship with creation. For God, rather, uh, we, need to be under, we need to be careful not to read that human category of understanding into what God does. So what does it mean for God to know or foreknow? And to answer that, we need to look to the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. We can understand words by looking at how they're used throughout Scripture. And we can look at Scripture to see what it means when God knows someone. Because something to notice here, it's not that God knows certain things. We read that those whom he foreknew. 
So it's not that God simply has awareness of future things, but this is actually the subject of what God knows is people. So what does it mean for God to know something? Well, we can look to the scriptures. Amos chapter two, uh, or chapter three, verse two, might give us some idea of what this means. God, speaking to the people of Israel, says this, "You only I have known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities." So he is speaking to Israel, and he says, "You Israel alone, I have known." So what does this mean? Is God only aware of the existence of Israel when he says this? No, absolutely not. We know God knows all things, of course. So what does it mean that God knew Israel? Well, it is speaking of the love that God has placed on Israel. It is only Israel whom God selected among all the nations to be his chosen people, holy, uh, a nation of priests before him. Uh, when God says that he has only known Israel, he is declaring that it is only Israel that he has set his intimate love and affection on among all the nations of the earth. And we see this uh, in other places in Scripture. Hosea similarly says in chapter 13, verse 5, I have known you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Now is God saying, I know that you were in the wilderness, Israel? No, He is talking about the care and love that he has placed on them. Deuteronomy speaks of this. Deuteronomy chapter 2, where Moses says, The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through the wilderness. And these 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, you have not lacked a thing. So God knowing Israel equals Israel lacking nothing during their wanderings in the wilderness. This knowing that God has for the people of Israel that we see in the Old Testament is the love that God places on them. That is not, now, and something we need to understand is that this love that God has placed on Israel is not based uh, on them being more worthy or more moral or better than any of the other nations. As Moses says in Deuteronomy, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than, you are, than the other people. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, knowing as we understand it, it does carry the meaning of having knowledge. That's how we use the word. But we see with God, it often goes deeper than just having mere knowledge of something. It conveys something much deeper. It conveys a much deeper relationship. And this is carried throughout uh, the Old Testament of the Hebrew word to know. For example, when we look at Genesis chapter 4, we read that the man knew his wife Eve. Now, what happened when he knew his wife Eve? Is it simply saying that, oh yes, I I am aware of this woman whom you have placed in the garden with me. No, it says, the man knew his wife Eve, and as a result, she conceived a son. So this knowing speaks of something much deeper than just a knowledge that is had. It speaks of a deep, intimate relationship and love that is had. And this is the very same word 
that we see in Romans. Paul speaks of uh, the people of Israel in Romans chapter 11 as he's speaking of the people of Israel. It says that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Again, speaking of Israel, these whom God has set his love on. Or do you not know what the scriptures say uh, uh, says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? So, bringing us back to Romans chapter 8, what does it mean, those whom he foreknew? Well, with all of this in mind, we can understand that this isn't just speak, simply speaking of knowledge that God has. God knows everything. He knows all people, does he not? He knows everything that happens, uh, even in the deepest, most remote parts of the earth. He knows the intimate thoughts and knowledge of everything. So what does it mean uh, that God foreknew uh, when it speaks of those whom, God foreknew, uh, those whom God foreknew. Well, with all of this in mind, we can understand it as those whom God has set his love on beforehand. We can see how this works when we find this word also in 1 Peter. And you don't have to turn here, I'll just read it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, uh, it is speaking of Jesus, and it says, For Christ was foreknown from the foundation of the world but has appeared at these last times for the sake of you. Here, Christ is described as foreknown. This is not merely describing knowledge that the Father had for the Son, but rather the love that he had for the Son, even from the foundation of the world. And this word foreknown is not only applied to Christ, but it is applied to those who are in Christ. At the very beginning of his letter, uh, Peter writes this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Salvation is the story of about what God has done, and salvation is the story about how God loved us first. God is the one who places his love on us, and he is the one who loves us first. And we see a picture of this in Jeremiah. Remember what God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet before the nations." This foreknowledge of God speaks of the love that God has on us before we can even love him back. And this is the constant pattern of Scripture, how God is the one who loves us first. And we see this in John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. By this the love of God was manifest, first uh, John rather, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he, showed, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins." Similarly, the Apostle Paul says to the Galatians, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elemental things which you desire to be enslaved to all over again? This love 
that God has placed on us is not done in return of anything within us, but it is rather a pure expression of God's love. And that's what salvation is. It's the story of how God loved us, how God saved us. It is all centered on God. The Apostle Paul says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What an amazing thing to be described as foreknown by God. What an amazing reality that is. Mr. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said something like this, I'm sure glad God foreknew and foreloved me because if he waited for me to be born, he wouldn't have loved me after that. And that's the reality. That's the truth. Before we were born, God knowing exactly who we are, exactly what we would do, sets his love on us. So the first link in the golden chain of redemption those whom he foreknew. And this flows right into the next link that we find, predestined, the second link of the golden chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What does this word predestined mean? Well, it means to be determined beforehand to foreordain, to decide before it happens. Just like foreknowing, the predestination that God does is not something that God just simply passively observes, but it is something that God has an active role in carrying out. And we see this throughout Scripture. And we have to remember, God is the one who determines the end from the beginning. He is outside of time. He is not bound to time. God is just as present in the eternal state right now as he is in eternity past. God is not bound to time. He, uh, rather, time is a servant of the Lord. And we see that when God predestines something, it is not God simply from one vantage point looking ahead to simply see what is going on. It is something that God determines beforehand. In the book of Acts, one of the great prayers of the early church, the church, after the persecution of Peter and John, after they were beaten, they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand uh, and your purpose predestined to occur. What happened to Jesus was predestined by God. It was predetermined by God. God determined that that it would happen before it happened. Jesus going to the cross was not by accident or by chance. Rather, it was the purpose of God to put him there from the foundation of the world so that he would be glorified. The cross was not plan B. The cross was not God scrambling to fix mankind's mistake. It was always God's intention to glorify himself by redeeming a sinful people through the death and resurrection of Christ. 
500 years before the cross even took place, we see this described in Isaiah 53, verse 10, where it says that the Lord was pleased to crush his son. It was God's good pleasure that Christ go to the cross. It was foreordained, it was predestined before time began that God would be glorified through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in redeeming a people to himself through that sacrifice. Just as God foreknows, we, uh, and we see here in this passage in Romans, that just as God foreknows, he also predestines. And this can be a difficult or even scary thing for some of us to think about. As soon as we start hearing the word predestination, we begin to get scared and we begin to think, oh, well, it must not really matter if God has already figured everything out. Well, Scripture plainly, uh, we may have the idea that predestination of God nullifies the responsibility that we have before God. We may think that predestination takes away our own agency, but that is not the case. Scripture plainly teaches that we're responsible before God, but this doesn't nullify what it teaches about God's sovereignty over all things. We may also have the idea that it is unfair that God predestines. Well, the reality is, if God did not act in saving, then no one would be saved. And because God acts in saving, those who are saved can be certain of the salvation that they have. We need to remember that God is not like us. That's the mistake that we make. We take our own understandings of what we think God should be and we try to read them back into God. But God presents himself as wholly other. He is completely different. Outside of time, outside of space, we can't even comprehend that. Remember, God is not like us. And he accomplishes all things according to his will. In Psalm 33, verses 9 through 11, we read, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. And it's this power, it's this being outside of time, it's this absolute sovereignty that God has that sets him apart from the rest of the gods, the gods of creation, the gods that are simply made up by human beings. If we turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 46, uh, Isaiah chapter 46, I want to read through this section. Isaiah chapter 46, and we begin reading in verse 5. We read God saying this, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we would be alike? And he's speaking of the false gods. Which one of these false gods that you have devised, that you have created, is like the Lord? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down to it, indeed they worship it. They lift it up on the shoulder and carry it. They set it on its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. But that is not what our God is like, is it? 
Our God is not fashioned after our own ideas, after our own imaginings. Our God is not bound to time, simply reacting to things that take place. Our God is above and beyond all of these things. The God of Scripture is not like the gods of the people who merely come from the imaginations of the people. Our God is a God who is uncreated, without beginning and end, and who declares the end from the beginning. If we continue reading, at verse 8 we read this. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God. There is no other I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which had not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it. Surely I will do it. The point of this is, if God says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Nothing is going to stop him from accomplishing his purposes. And we can be comforted by this fact. The fact that God declares the ends of, from the beginning because it gives us the certainty of salvation. And this is how he concludes this chapter. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded, who are far from night righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation I will not delay. I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. God promises salvation. And what an amazing truth, because if God promises it, then we know for certain that it is an accomplished thing. God's action and predestination are not according to any good that is found within us. Rather, it is found according to God's kind intentions. This isn't the only place that it's spoken of. If we turn to Ephesians chapter 1, we read this. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. So it's not a matter of us deserving. It's not a matter of us working for it. It doesn't say that God predestined those whom he knew would be good. It doesn't say God predestined those whom he knew would be righteous. Rather, it is determined by his will. It is determined on his kindness. God says, I'm going to do this because I am a good God, because I want to show my kindness, because of the kind intention of my will to the praise and glory of his grace. That means that my salvation is not something that is found in me. If I've trusted in Christ, that is holy of God. It is not because I myself am good or I myself was better than the other person, but because God himself has shown 
great kindness. This continues in verse 11. It says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Remember, Scripture, all of the Bible, is a rescue story about the rescuer. It's about what God is doing. We find ourselves in the pages of Scripture only as those worthy, only as those worthy of death and hell who are rescued by a kind and merciful God. We go back to Romans 8, and we see what we have been predestined to, this great truth, this great thing that we have to look forward to. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What has God determined beforehand for us? That we be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the ultimate good that all things are working for in verse 28. We read in verse 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What is that ultimate good that God is working all things for? To be conformed to the image of his Son. To look like Christ. No one is good but God alone. We recognize that. That's what, God, that's what Christ teaches. And Christ is the embodiment of the goodness that is God. And the ultimate good that God is working all things together for is for us to be conformed to the image of the one who is truly good. Christ, who is the very image of God. When we think about what happens after death, uh, we usually don't think beyond, well, uh, well, we'll get to heaven, maybe I'll get a crown, I'll get a nice harp, I can float around on some clouds and uh, just enjoy not being here on earth, right? We, we just simply think of the escaping of the, the, the things that are happening here on earth. But what is God ultimately going to bring us to? What is the ultimate end and our ultimate goal? That we are going to look like Jesus Christ. Everything that is true, everything that is righteous about Christ will be true of us. We will be conformed to his image. We will no longer have this body of sin. We will no longer be able to die. We will no longer be walking outside of the will of God. Rather, just as Christ lives according to the will of his Father, we too will be made perfect just as Christ is. This is the ultimate good. This is the ultimate goal. And this is what God is doing. This is not something that we can do. This is not something that we do ourselves. No matter how hard I try, I will never look like Jesus. The only thing, the only one who can make me like him is God. And we see here that that is the promise that God has. That we will be conformed to the image of his son. And this is not only for our benefit. We see that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he, so that Christ, would be the firstborn among many brethren. The reason that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, again, it goes back to God. 
It goes back to what God is doing in glorifying himself and carrying out his own purposes. And the reason that we are conformed to the image of Christ is so that Christ would be preeminent. So the, uh, the word firstborn here is not speaking of, uh, it's not the idea that the Son of God was at one point created. The word firstborn, as we know, carries the idea of preeminence. The firstborn is the one who inherits everything of the fathers. He is the one who is in charge of everything that belongs to the Father. And Christ is called the firstborn because he is the one who is preeminent. Firstborn means that Christ is first in line, first in rank, and preeminent over those who would be conformed to his image. And this idea is expanded on by the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. And you don't have to turn here, I'll just read it. But in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, the Apostle Paul says this, that he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Because of what God has done, we can be called the brethren of Christ. And we can become as he is. And it's all because of what Christ has done. It's all because of what God has done in saving us. We can be called brethren of Christ because he became as we are. He died the death that we deserve. He rose again from the dead to ensure our own resurrection into glory. This is what the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 2, you don't have to turn here. But we do see him, Christ, who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and he who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And and again, behold, and uh, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Who's he describing? Well, the very same people described here, those who have trusted in Christ. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power over death, that is the devil, and might free those 
who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Salvation is a rescue story. It's a story of God saving. It's all about God. God saves us for himself. He saves us to himself for his own glory. And because of that, salvation is something that we can have complete trust in. God is the one who saves. And this brings us to the conclusion. Three concluding points. God is the one who saves. We do not purchase our salvation, work for our salvation, maintain our salvation, and we cannot lose our salvation because because our salvation is not something that we do, but something that God does. God is the one who saves. All of these links in the golden chain of redemption, and we'll continue looking next week, are things that God does for our good and for his glory. Salvation is not a prize to be earned through our own righteousness and works, but it is a gift to be freely received through faith. Point two, salvation is secured by God from the foundation of the world. Because salvation is of the Lord, it is not something that can ever be taken away from us. It is not something that we ourselves can lose. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is determined and secured from the foundation of the world and freely bestowed on those who are in Christ. Foreknown, predestined. Guess when those things happened? Before the beginning. And guess what? That truth will carry to the end of time. What an amazing reality that is. If we trust in Christ, we can know that God was the one who loved us first. Anyone who trusts in Christ can know for certain that that salvation belongs to them because God is the one who loved us first. And third, we need to remember, salvation is not about us. Yeah, we are great recipients of it. Yes, we get to enjoy that reality for eternity, but the Bible is not our story. The Bible is God's story. It's a rescue story about how God glorifies himself through the redemption of a people to himself to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's a story about how God takes a bride and gives it to his son, a bride perfect, blameless, spotless, washed by the word of God, purchased by the blood of Christ. We can know that he who began a good work will complete it. Though we may be far from it in this life, God is the one who will complete the work of conforming us to the image of his Son and bringing us to glory. If we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know that we are secured by this golden chain of redemption that we find here in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30 we can claim all of these promises for ourselves. If we've trusted in Christ, we can know that we have been foreknown and thus loved beforehand from the foundation of the world. We can know that we have been predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. We can know that that's our future. We can know that that's our future reality. We can know that we have been called called as sheep by the voice of the shepherd. 
we can know that we have been justified, justified through faith, a free gift granted by the shedding of the blood of Christ, and that we can know for certain that we will be glorified. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, this is all about you. This is about what you have done in saving a people to himself. We are the mere recipients who receive this gift given to us because of what your Son has done. We can do nothing to earn it. We can only trust in your holy word, trust that you have given it to us. And we can know that these realities are true because you truly sent your Son to die in the place of sinners. You love the world in this way that you sent Christ to become like us, to die in the cross, to die in the way that we deserve to die. And he rose again from the dead, and because of that reality, we can know that we too will experience that resurrection. We too will be conformed to his image, and we too, if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, can know that our eternity will be in your presence. And again, this is not because of any good that is found within us. Rather, it is the story that you are telling of the great salvation that you have provided. I pray that if there's anyone in here who does not have this story and cannot claim that for their own, who do not see themselves in it, that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ even this hour. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.